Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Things We Said Today, our weekly uh, uh, virtual roundtable where we discuss all things uh, Beatles, uh, their past, what's going on today, and their uh, and their future. Uh, I'm Al Sussman from Beatle Fan Magazine, and I'm here with my three co-hosts plus a guest. Uh, first, the uh, the host of the syndicated uh, Beatles radio show. Every little thing, and that's Ken Michaels. Hey, Ken. Hi, Al. Hi, everybody. And our uh, our resident uh, resident newsman who does uh, who does reporting uh, f- for uh, Billboard and for AXS.com and various other sites and things, and that's uh, Steve Marinucci. Hey, Steve. Hey, Al. Hello, everyone. And uh, our resident musicologist and professional critic, longtime uh, classical music reviewer for the New York Times. In fact, I believe he descended into the uh, the depths to <laughs> with with a new piece, right? Just this Saturday, yeah, that's true. Right, exactly. Wow. And as well as doing work for uh, the the Wall Street Journal and again various other sources, and that's uh, Alan Cozen. Hey, Alan. Hey, Al. How you doing? And hello, everyone. And uh, our our guest, although she's turning into almost uh, almost a regular, uh, a semi regular, is uh, another visit from uh, from the good doctor from Kiddo Tool. Who is the uh, the author of songs we were singing, uh, guided tours through the Beatles' lesser known tracks, and she's also the author of Michael Jackson FAQ. She's uh, been Beatle Fan Magazine's internet editor for just about 20 years, she, as long as well as doing feature pieces, reviews, and other such things for Beatle Fan. Plus, she does um, Deep Beatles and Deep Soul for Something Else Reviews, and she does music review, uh, movie reviews, and uh, I think, she, do you still do reviews for Blinded by Sound? Yes, yep, I do the Deep Soul column for Blinded by Sound. Oh, okay. Reviews oh. for that periodically. Yeah, I do Deep Beatles for something else reviews. Okay. Yep. Yeah. To keep a scorecard here with all of this. <laughs> it's very confusing. <laughs> and uh, that is, of course, our friend, Dr. Kid O'Toole. Hi, Al. Hi, everybody. Great to be back. Great, Great to have you on. Yeah, as always. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, before we get into the subject that uh, we're uh, that we're sort of having Kit on for, because uh, she suggested the uh, the topic, I have a little piece of business to take care of. Uh, there's a new movie that debuted over over this past weekend called The Lennon Report. Now, there have been you know over the years there have been other movies about the events of December 8th, 1980, and um, which for those of you who may be too young to remember, that's the night of the murder of of John Lennon. And um, generally, those other films have been usually those sort of creepy criminal minds type exposés on the piece of uh, excrement that, uh, that committed this atrocity. Fortunately, that's not the case with the Lennon Report. Um, it's it's not, in fact, uh, that aforementioned piece of garbage is not even mentioned in the film. 
But there is an interesting story in there, and uh, Steve saw the film over uh, over the course of the weekend, and uh, uh, let's get his thoughts. Well, I yeah, I uh, interviewed the um, the writer, director, and some of the people involved with the film uh, a few months ago, and two of the people I interviewed were two of the nurses in the operating room that night, and uh, which was an interesting situation in and of itself. But the interesting thing that Jeremy Prof, the writer-director, told me um, when I talked to them is that the film, because the first thing I said to him was, you know, Beatle fans are real sensitive about this thing, and uh-huh. and why should they see it? And he said, they, the one thing they didn't do was glorify, you know, who the piece of garbage. Uh, Right. Yeah. And in fact, um, I used a, I used a quote from, uh, well, I've done two stories on it, one on billboard and one on access.com, which was the review, which I published today. And he said, we really, really did not want to be a party to lending any more celebrity or credibility to a shooter. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, you know, uh, I guess the the very idea of doing the film itself is going to have a lot of people going, well, you've already done that. But in fact, the film does not mention his name at all. He, uh, of course, you know, he's shown being arrested, but you don't see his face fully. He's never, like I said, he's never mentioned by name. It's basically about the events of the night involving how the medical, you know, how the hospital handled it, how the police handled it, how even uh, journalist Alan Weiss, who happened to find himself in Roosevelt Hospital that night because of being in a motorcycle accident, Mm -hmm. uh, how he was involved in getting the story out. And that's that's what the film is. And... I found it interesting. I found it uh, interesting. Um, I have to say, it kind of starts off like kind of like a documentary, but it isn't a documentary. It's a it's a, a fictional film, though it does have real life uh, interviews with the real life people at the very end. I did not interview Weiss. I did interview two of the nurses, however, and that was a that was really um, emotional. For me, I had to kind of, you know, go very slowly because they were giving me descriptions of what happened and how, you know, John was was not. Uh, I think uh, one of the nurses told me John was DOA mm. when they basically DOA when they brought him in, and she said, you know, you don't look at because uh, they did not know who he was when they brought him in, and it was only when they looked through his pockets and found his ID that they found out who it was. And she said, you know, in a case like that, you don't, you're not looking at the person, at the person's face. You're looking to try and, you know, to treat him. And that's mm-hmm. what they, that's what they did. So the, the movie, it's, uh, I mean, I understand there's going to be a lot of people and I've already heard from people on, on social media that they either won't see it or it's going to be difficult for them. And I fully understand that. What I would say, however, though, is that it's a good film. It's not a piece of garbage. The only question, and I said this in my review, is the fact that they issued it, they released it two days before John's birthday. Mm. And that's kind, of, that's kind of strange, but I guess it's better than releasing it in December because we would all be, you know, really depressed. Um, but 
in any event, um, I think it's a good film. And if you, you know, if you want to see what happened there, you know, uh, there were issues about, uh, you know, they, how they, how they, how it was difficult for the hospital personnel, which it was. And also for uh, an interesting point from my point of view was the fact that ABC, which as everybody knows, broke the news through Howard Cosell, right. actually, actually had some, had some discussion about whether or not they should even break it um mm-hmm. during the during the football game right um so in any event i have to say i recommended it they uh, uh they we have a a seven rating scale on access and i gave it a five so i would recommend it i really i would um but i understand that for a lot of people this is not something they're going to want to see but it, it is not again it is not about you know who so mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah, it's uh, uh, that's that's actually a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. and again, and again, like I said, when I interviewed them a few months ago, and and that was the first thing I brought up. You know, that fans were not going to be, you know, real happy to hear about another film about Lennon's death, and they said, you know, it's not about the guy. Right. So, did it make an argument that you found compelling, or is it simply straightening out the record and and providing more detail? Mm-hmm. Well, it it tries to it tries to um, straighten out the record in terms of some of the stuff that happened that night. the The story about uh, well, for example, uh, um, I guess the media reports were that Doctor Lin said that he operated on John and that wasn't the case. It was Dr. Halloran, according to the movie and Dr. Marx assisted him. And also the, there were the, there were media reports and I could swear I heard them. I know we were talking about this before the show started. And, and a couple of you said that you hadn't heard that about Yoko banging your head on the wall or on the floor, or, you know, really acting really yeah. distraught. Yeah. Yeah, but that, I, but those were those were a kid. Did you did, do you remember that? Yep, I've heard that over time, and really? I don't hearing it right when it happened because I was eight years old when it happened. Right. But over the years, yeah, that has always been the story that yeah, she was banging her head on the wall and the floor and was hysterical. But they said no, that was not the case, and that uh, uh, the only what she actually was trying to do that night was to get home and to break the news to Sean. In fact. She asked the hospital to delay the announcement to give her time to get home to break it to him first, right. so that he would, mm-hmm. he wouldn't hear it on television. So I remember hearing that. Yes. So you know there there are a number of things that they try to correct in the film, according and they the film does rely on the nurse. Uh, you know uh, some of the people involved. Uh, the two of the nurses, I like I said, were two of the people I talked to for the billboard story. So it's they do have and and it's interesting because initially the film was written differently until they were able to contact the nurses and then they found out a lot of what they had written was not true and they they did a massive rewrite on the film. So um, in in terms of you know to try to get mm-hmm. accuracy uh, of the, get the story accurate. So there you go. I mean you can uh, you know take it for what it is and and. Whatever I I I do think it's it's a decent film, right? So. And obviously not not the kind of you know <laughs> light entertainment that one might uh, you no. know go go 
two on a Saturday night, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I think you have mentioned that it's that it's already uh, available for streaming. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's on iTunes and it's on Amazon Prime and in the my access review, which I posted on uh, my page today and also on um, in Beetle News and Commentary and I posted it several other places and on Twitter. Um, it does have links to directly to iTunes and Amazon Prime. Mm, so uh, that, and I don't that, know. I don't. I don't know of a uh, of a, a DVD release yet. I'm sure there will be one. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah. But uh, just the the mere fact that it's available for streaming that might be, uh, you know, for viewing this kind of a film that might be the way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you if you're going to watch it at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. There you, there you go. So. Uh, Transitioning greatly out of that, <laughs> very quickly out of that, Kit came up with an idea for uh, for a subject for us to talk about, and that was the um, the reinvention, if you will, of George Harrison's uh, solo career in the uh, in the late eighties. Uh, and Kit, why don't you give us some, you know, some background, not only on, you know, your thoughts on that, but also background on, uh, you know, where, where George had, had gone from, say, the beginning of the 80s until 1987. Sure. Well, this is, this is what fascinated me, you know, about this subject, because, (laughs) You know, when you listen, and, and, you know, I did this as I hadn't done this in a while, so I did this before the show. You know, when you listen to Somewhere in England, Gone Tropo, and then Cloud Nine back-to-back, and, and Traveling Wilburys, too, um, I mean, it's fascinating to hear the journey that, that he went through. I mean, you can hear it right there in the music. I mean, you almost don't have to know the background, but, you know, the background is, you know, when he was recording... Um, somewhere in England, I mean, you could, I mean, he was becoming more and more disillusioned with the music business. You can hear it on that album. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, the label didn't like it at first. He had to go back and re-record it. So by the time Gone Tropo came along, he was just looking to fulfill the contract and just be done with it. And so, you know, Gone Tropo has this kind of half-finished quality to it because he wasn't exactly, you know, his heart wasn't in it. I mean, you could just tell. Uh, there are some nice moments. We'll, we'll get to it later, I'm sure. But there are some nice moments on that album. But overall, both albums were critically and uh, commercially disappointing. You know, so he sort of, you know, decided to, to get away from the business for a while. Now, he did do the odd mu- movie soundtrack. Right. Uh, and, yeah, you know, he did, including the, the classic uh, Porky's Revenge. Uh, if I ever... <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic. Um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a mystery. But anyway... <laughs> um, but he did that, and, um, you know, but then he started... I think he started finding, you know, his passion again, even as early as 85 when he did that Carl Perkins special, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, you could see, I mean, he, he, he you know, was playing live for the first time in a while and, you know, playing with his friends and with his idol, of course. And I think he started finding that, that passion again. And then in 86, when he was working on the otherwise 
forgettable film, Shanghai Surprise, you know, he started, you know, doing songs for that. He collaborated uh, with Jeff Lynne, you know, and that started his career resurgence. And so by 87, he, you know, came back with this album and it was a massive hit. And, uh, and to think that a song, an obscure single from 1962, was the key to getting him back on the charts and, and introducing him to a whole new generation. And so it's, it's just fascinating to see how he came from this, you know, pretty dark place and disillusioned place into, you know, Cloud Nine, which is just a complete, you know, I mean, it isn't all happy. It isn't all uh-huh. happy songs. I mean, there's elements of his dark humor and that sort of thing. Mm, but, Devil's Radio. You know, yeah, Devil's Radio and, you know. But he sounds stronger. He sounds, you know, more confident. You know, the passion is back. Um, and so it just, you know, in, in less than 10 years, he just underwent this this real transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah. And Ken, I think you had some you had some thoughts on this as well. Well, I, I have to say, first of all, that I think that George always put the effort into his music even on those early 80s albums. Yes, he was upset about Somewhere in England that Warner Brothers rejected some of the songs and he had to replace them. And actually, some of those songs were better than in what ended up on Somewhere in England. Uh-huh. But um, Gontrapo, I would never say, was a, was a half-finished album. I think mm-hmm. it's a very satisfying album all the way through. I just uh-huh. think that despite the fact that he put the effort into the, to the music, which I truly believe, I just think he didn't care about promoting it. So mm-hmm. when Gontrapo came out, Mm-hmm. He did absolutely no promotion, which is part of the reason why it didn't sell that well. Mm-hmm. Not that there was a guarantee it would have sold well anyway, even if he promoted it, but he was disillusioned. I mean, blood from a clone is kind of what that's <laughs> yeah. all about. Yeah, really. absolutely. Yeah, I thought, that, I thought that was really interesting in that, you know, he's being told that he has to remove songs from an album and give them new stuff. And, and blood from a clone to me is like a perfect act of George Harrison defiance. You yeah, know? I mean, this is one of the new songs he gives them, basically a, a critique right. of the music industry. And to think that he started the whole album, he kicks off the whole Summer in England album with Blood from a Clone. Right. So, wow, that yeah. takes some guts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is that that song has turned out to be uh, a lot more relevant than I think a lot of us <laughs> thought back in, uh, in 1981. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but it's very revealing because it, it's telling you what the record company's saying to him. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but I think the effort was always there with the music. I think George always loved writing music and recording music. He just didn't care all that much about promoting it. He didn't really like making videos. But his attitude changed uh, around the time of Cloud Nine, yeah. and I think that he cared a little bit about bouncing back and having success again. You know, he still, even during that time of Cloud Nine, if you if you listen to the interviews, he's saying that he knows that he has to do these interviews because the record company wants him to. It's what's expected. But I don't think in his heart he wanted to do interviews and really promote it. He just loves making music. The music is what mattered. And I think right. that Jeff Lynn really injected some life into him. You know, at the time, he was doing really well with Tom Petty uh, producing Full Moon Fever. So, you know, he was a hot producer at that time and understanding his whole background and being 
a real Beatle geek himself, you know, <laughs> he was a very ideal producer for George, and they worked together very well. Not only did they co-produce Cloud Nine, but they wrote songs together too. So it was a really good pair right there in terms of production. But um, you know, I just think he he strove to make it more commercially accessible, and at various times enjoyed his career, he's done that. I mean, you go back to 33 and a third, I think he really tried to be a little bit more commercial with songs like Cracker Box Palace and, and mm-hmm. uh, this song, you know, and then he'll have albums where it's kind of dark and he's not really concerned about having hit records. So, but he did try with Cloud Nine and very successfully. He sure did. Sure did. Kit, what did you feel that Jeff Lynn brought to the table, to the musical, to George's musical table, that contributed so much to this renaissance in his uh, in his music? Gosh, um, I mean, it was it was a number of things. First of all, as you know, Ken was saying that that one of the things that Jeff Lynn brought was that that respect for the Beatles sound, but also he brought you know, I think craftsmanship. Um, now, not that George, George, of course, was a craftsman, but he was really able to help him, you know, flesh ideas out, give him a little more power, maybe. I mean, because when you listen to Cloud Nine as opposed to somewhere in England, Gontropo, I mean, it just sounds different. You know, there's uh-huh. there's a there's more of a confident um, air to it, sure. um, and and I think you know maybe it. Well, clearly, George felt very comfortable working with Jeff Lynn. And so I think that came through and uh, in, in the songs. And I mean, one of my favorite songs um, from cloud nine is uh, if that's what it takes. Um, I've always mm. loved that one. And I, what I like about it is, I mean, there are almost different sections to that song and, and Jeff, you know, helped him, through you know his own you know ex- extensive experience obviously and you know really helped him flesh out that song into into something else and I'm, I'm trying to think of how to you know it's hard to describe but I, I just think it's such a well-crafted pop song and so when you get two craftsmen together like that I mean you know same Jeff I thought did the same thing for Paul on, on, on uh, Flaming Pie you know I thought there were some songs there that Jeff just really helped him, you know, flesh out some of those ideas that, that he had into something more, you know, I mean, catchy is kind of a cliched thing to say, but it's true, you know, and I, I just think that he brought that, that, you know, that attention to detail and that craftsmanship and a slightly more modern sound too, you know, because as I said, when you listen to Cloud Nine as opposed to the others, it definitely has a more, 80 sound, although it, it definitely sound, still sounds relevant. You know, right. uh, yeah, it's not dated. Uh, it's it's really interesting to listen to it now because it really does not sound dated at all. Hmm. Now, J- Jeff Lynn has a particular production sound. Yeah. Uh, because you can certainly hear it on, you know, not only Cloud Nine, but also on the Traveling Wilburys albums, on Tom Petty's uh, album from uh, that that period from um, Roy Orbison's album from that uh, from that time and even what seven years hence the uh, the two electronic Beatles reunion uh, tracks um, so in a now 
how do you guys feel about that? You know, the sort of the Jeff Lynn sound. Oh, I love that. I love the Jeff Lynn sound. I thought, uh, I thought Cloud Nine was a, a superb album. In fact, it's one of my favorites. In fact, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, you know, George was kind of the uh, the if there's a musical rebel within the Beatles, I think he was it. Even more, even more to a certain extent than John, because what you said about his about his out, you know, his attitude uh, toward being commercial. I mean, you know, um, he went through this period where he he um, he tried to do what he wanted to do for a while, and some of it worked. Some of it was accepted, and some of it wasn't. And then he did Gontrapo, which wasn't, which blatantly wasn't. And then he did Cloud Nine, which which was absolutely a masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. So, I, and and I, in fact, that's I think that's probably one of my top three favorite Harrison albums is Cloud Nine. I absolutely, I absolutely love that to death. It, it's it's just just about every song on that album is 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 uh, superb. And but I think he more than even John. I mean, John went through a you know, uh, an up and down thing with his music too. Well, I mean, just the fact of him and Yoko, the way they experimented and everything. I mean, that kind of threw things in a, in a, you know, in a world, but George didn't do that. I mean, George stayed musical, but, but, uh, you're, you know, the, the point about blood from a clone is really, uh, is really, a, is really a good one. I, I just heard a, somebody was moving around there. Uh, blood from a clone was really, was really an interesting point and the fact that he did the shanghai surprise uh soundtracks uh, or soundtrack i mean that was and i I still think it's too bad that didn't get released as a whole but but yeah i think jefflin was great for him i think they were a perfect match Mm -hmm. alan how did you feel uh yeah i well you know i like jeff lynn back in the elo days an awful lot mm-hmm. and and the and i took pretty seriously what you know lenin said i think in the, in that dennis Ellis's interview it probably was um in 74 where he right. said you know elo was doing what the beatles would be doing and you know and basically elo sound was built on the arrangements from I am the walrus in a certain way. So um I've you know, I've not only always liked Jeff Lynn, thought he did a spectacular job on Cloud Nine, really made that album sort of pop out in a way that George's previous albums hadn't. And, you know, I loved Gontrapo when we, we did a show on Gontrapo mm-hmm. you know, a few months ago mm-hmm. and that was my suggestion. I just I love that album really pretty much from the time it came out. And I don't think that it's entirely fair to say that it wasn't accepted. I think nobody knew about it. You know, I mean, there was, mm-hmm. there was just what Ken said is, is, is true. There's no publicity about it. He did nothing. Right. You know, I just mm-hmm. sort of accidentally stumbled on it in a bin one day and, and bought it. But, you know, I don't think anybody knew about it. I think whether or not it would have gone anywhere if people did know about it is something we can't answer. But, um, but back to Jeff Lynn. Uh, you know, if you read a lot of comments on the sort of Beatles world internet, um, there oh. there are people who really, really dislike Jeff Lynne, and I just don't get it. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't get it. But um, 
Yeah. Well, to play to, maybe to play devil's advocate. Okay. I think there are some people because I, I know myself by about 1990 or 91, I was starting to get some Jeff Lynne fatigue. Hmm. After you know, yeah. after Cloud Nine and the the two Wilburys albums and Tom Petty and Roy Orbison and Dave, Ed, Dave Edmonds, Dave Edmonds, Dan Dave Edmonds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that he was the work that he was doing by about nine ninety one. I had pretty much had my fill of of Roy, of uh, uh, of Jeff Lynne. Uh, although, you know, in retrospect, you know, going back and listening to those albums now, they're extremely well-crafted, mm-hmm. but I think there are people who feel that his, his sound is somewhat samey. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can understand yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I felt that way for a long time too. And, and, uh, you know, for me, I mean, it's, it, you just you know a Jeff Lynne production when you hear it. I mean, yes. for me it's the for me it's the drums. You know, the yes. drums are always a giveaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some of the strings too. You know, you yeah. just you instantly know it's a Jeff Lynne song. And you know, sometimes I think it it depends on what you feel should be the role of the producer. You know, I mean that's an issue I've had too with Phil Spector. I mean, you know, of course, many of his his productions are fantastic, but again, sure. you, you it's illegal and you're like, oh, Phil Spector. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I always want the producer to be, you know, the the, the star, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the song. Now, as you said, going back and listening to some of those uh, albums now, including Cloud Nine, yeah, I mean they've they've held up a lot yes. better than than I ever would have thought. In a way, uh, it bothers me less than it used to, but yeah, I mean, I I definitely have had my issues with him over the years too. Mm-hmm. Can I bounce off this? Please. <laughs> Uh, first of all, one of the things that I love about Jeff working with George is that, yes, you know it's a Jeff Lynne production, but to me it's not buried in Jeff Lynne. It's definitely a blending of the two. Um, I think that Jeff Lynne started to have a similar sound in the later days of ELO. If you go back to the early times when it was so very orchestrated, it didn't uh-huh. sound like what he was doing later on when he was more rock and rockabilly and you had you know, Hold On Tight and uh, yeah. Rock and Roll is King and those songs. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then his his sound for his own records started to sound the same. You definitely, you, you heard some of those elements, like you said, the drums, the dry mm-hmm. vocals. Um, mm-hmm. That's very much a part of the Jeff Lynne sound. But I think that he, there was a good balance on on uh, Cloud Nine and on Brainwash too, between mm-hmm. Jeff's work and, and George's work. Um, I don't, I don't you know. think it was all, it was all... Jeff Lynn. Uh, I don't think Cloud Nine was all Jeff Lynn at all. I think I there were some. There, no, I know. No, I know you didn't. But I'm. Uh, you know, I think there were some elements of it, but not certainly not all of. It. I mean, there was enough individual uh, of George's individuality there. Uh, um, I, I think again. I you know, like I said, I think I think Cloud Nine is one of the be- one of the better albums that George ever did. I think it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So. Well, from my standpoint, there's there's more commercial uh, recordings, Cloud Nine being one of them. All things must pass. Thirty three and a third. Some people mm-hmm. prefer that side of George, especially the where he shows humor. Yeah. You know, and when you're watching uh, the one video that was shown so much, there there was I think three videos for Got My Mind Set on You, but the one where right. you know he's sitting in yeah. the rocking chair and he's got yeah. that 
that double that that does the leap, you know, the, mm-hmm. the somersault, whatever. You know, that right. was that, that was a funny video. Yes, you see right. that side of him. And when he was fab, the video for that, a lot of people prefer that side of George when he's funny. Mm-hmm. And he can have a wicked sense of humor, but he can just as easily put out a great album that's not as commercial. And to me, Gontrapo was really a great album for me anyway. Um, and I love Cloud Nine on its own merits, too. With Cloud Nine, I think that, and this is also partially due to the fact that he was working on Shanghai Surprise. I love the fact that he does something like Breath Away from Heaven, which is so different from the other music that he's written, as well as the title track, The Shanghai Surprise. To write something with that oriental feel to it, he was stretching creatively in, in that way. And I think that it worked very well for those songs, not to mention the other songs he did in Shanghai Surprise. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I and, and I absolutely. And I, I also want to further comment on, on something Steve said about his, you know, he didn't give uh, give up his individuality. I think that's an important thing to note in his, his transformation uh, in the 80s. That, yes, as, as you said, Ken, you know, Cloud9 can be considered the more, you know, commercial uh, kind of side of, of George. But, you know, his signature sound is still there. Through, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is, it permeates that album. Um, I mean, that slide guitar, mm-hmm. uh, as we've mentioned, that that humor. And I just think it's remarkable when you think about, you know, how he was able to do that and yet, you know, score a, a big hit with, with this album and Got My Mind Set On You. And, you know, that album came out when I was in high school. And I remember my friends who were not into the Beatles at the time, or they vaguely knew about them, they really liked this album. I mean, it really brought a new generation to his music. Uh, they loved "Got My Mind Set on You," um, and the videos, as you mentioned, that was a that was a factor too. I mean, the fact that you know, I particularly that version of "Got My Mind Set on You," the the um, the one of him sitting in the study, I thought that was yeah. so clever because you could tell. You know, George didn't really want to do a video, <laughs> but, you know, let's just say I don't think it was his number one favorite thing to do. You can see him even almost rolling his eyes at somebody off camera at one point. But I thought the the, the video did a great job of almost making fun of that, um, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was, so, you know, so it was kind of meta in a way. But but in any case, it, it just uh, made him, you know, more even more approachable. And so I just think that's that's amazing that he was able to do all that and yet not lose, you know, his individual sound and, and his kind of songwriting and, and to bring a, a you know younger generation uh, to to his music. And it's so ironic that. Got my mind set on you, was yeah. was a number one record, and in fact is the at least to this point in time, is the last number one record that any of the uh, ex Beatles have had in their uh, in their their solo careers. But you you know you think, my God, I mean there are, there are better songs than that just on that album, let alone you know let alone in his uh his uh you know his own resume that this cover version like you said kit of a 1962 r&b hit semi-hit uh should be should be a number one song is one of those imponderables that uh uh that so often happen in the music business Mm -hmm. 
I think yeah. I think George Harrison had a, a an interestingly sort of you know dualistic. Uh, not that he was a split personality, but there were two very opposite parts of him. Um, mm-hmm. And we've talked about it in terms of commercial and non-commercial. <clears throat> you know, but there was there was also the George that was, you know, just sort of bitter in a lot of ways about the, the life that he um, ended up with during and after the Beatles period. I mean, and, and, sure. and on one hand, you know, you look at it and you say, oh, you know, poor baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but you can also understand it when you look at the experience in a way that's described in eight days a week, you know, where they're, yes. they're just shut in and they're, you know, carted around. And they're, they're, they're a commodity, you know, and, uh-huh. um, uh, and then his own battles within the band to get, his music heard um and then afterwards the up and downs of you know all things must pass and then you know the thing the ones that were were less successful and all that you mm-hmm. so you can kind of see that by the time he gets to Gontrapo it's like all right you know what I've done an album and I don't you know, it, here it is yeah you know? yeah uh, <laughs> um and yet if, on, you, if you don't like it I'm tough and on yep. cloud nine though it's like he's like it's it's the other side of him, you know the 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 poking fun at the Beatles and when we was fab and I, and I I have to think that he got into making that video at least, you know whether sure. yeah. whether, whether or not Cloud the the got my mind set on you maybe maybe not but but that one is just you know so funny and so full of little in jokes and yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of think he must have he must have enjoyed doing that. And uh, about Phil Spector, uh, not Phil Spector, <laughs> Jeff Lynne. <laughs> Ooh, Freudian slip there. Uh oh. Yeah, <laughs> very Freudian. Really? Well, well, because Kit mentioned it. You know, <laughs> put, my fault. Put put Phil into my mind. You know. Um, Yes, about Jeff Lynne. Uh, you know, f- you know f- Jeff- as you guys know, I mean, far be it for me to say anything provocative, but. Um, the one no. thing about <laughs> the one thing about Jeff Lynn, and even if it sounded a little bit samey, is that we're talking about this period of the late '80s and the early '90s, and samey as it may have sounded, at least uh-huh. it was kind of samey in a musical way, as opposed to the sort of general nadir of civilization that was going on elsewhere in the music business uh-huh. during <laughs> that whole 80s, 90s period, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Kit? Kit? <laughs> yes, respond, Kit. Yeah, this is now, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, the, I'm the 80s kid here, you know. <laughs> I, I will, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think I, I will definitely admit that you know Cloud Nine, as I said, it 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 holds up. You know, it holds up better. That it sounds a bit more timeless than some of the other music of that period. I will I will give you some of it. You know, but okay. but I think though there was. I mean, you know, I mean, I, this is probably a whole different show to do. But I mean, you know, stuff that REM was doing at the time and everything. I mean, I think. You know, there was other great music going on, but uh, uh, right. but I see, but I see your point about that 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 Cloud Nine and some of the other Jeff Lynne productions have held up better than you know some of the other productions of the eighties. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I, I see know. your point I, there. I I would never call the eighties or, or that decade the nadir. 
Yeah. You know, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff in every single decade. Exactly. So, um, and there's oh, some on. stuff that isn't that good. Yeah. You, know, you don't like anything from the 80s, Steve? I didn't say I didn't like anything, but I wouldn't call it, I certainly wouldn't call it what the 60s and 70s were. Well, you know, it's, it's you can't really, you almost can't really compare it because that was, the 80s was the decade when everything, when the music business began to, you know, contract you know, that all of that, you know, that kind of Wild West, anything goes attitude that was going on in the 70s, you know, really went out the window and everything started to be, carp, you know, musically compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. And so I think that probably accounts for why a lot of stuff from the 80s, with, you know, that is, uh, you know, very kind of... <laughs> cynically stylized hasn't aged all that well but well, yeah I don't, as, as, I don't agree as, with that <laughs> I mean, i'm not saying everything i'm saying some but there, mm. i mean there are a goodly amount a goodly amount of of stuff from there uh, you know of you know you know hit material from the 80s is you know just has not aged terribly well because it was it was made as basically just uh, especially in the wake of the you know the original success of MTV you know where it was you know it wasn't even you know uh, it was sort of well let's make let's make a song but make sure that it looks good as a video you know well I'm only concentrating on the music itself I can listen to music without thinking about the video. And there's a lot of stuff that came out of the 80s. There's very little that I would complain about. I wouldn't say that it sounds dated. A lot of the stuff from the 80s sounds like it could have come out today, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. You know, a lot of the Michael Jackson stuff and Madonna and Wham and, you know, a lot of what was played on rock stations, I think, mm-hmm. sounds very contemporary. So, you know, those are my ears. And, you know, I think every single decade has its share of great music and not so great music. Right. And it, isn't, it isn't just a matter of what you grew up listening to. You know, uh-huh. there's always going to be some emotion attached to that period of your life sure. when you were younger. You, you wouldn't be human if you didn't feel that. But I just I listen to all this music. I love music from most decades. And I don't just attach, you know, the time that it came out and just say it's dated because it comes out. It came out in a certain time. Mm-hmm. I know that the 80s has a lot of synthesized stuff, which a lot of. You know, the people who grew up on guitar rock kind of resented. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. look at that as being dated. But there's so much stuff that's out today, like EDM music. Yeah. Know, that sounds like it could have been made in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. It's, it's and that, that is exactly yeah. my point. It's like, yeah, well, EDM is. You say ed- that because you don't like that kind EDM of EDM is. Yes, is right. The, 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 EDM is truly the end of civilization. <laughs> Now, now, <laughs> no, I mean, I don't like all of it, but, but, you know, in any case, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I remember in the eighties, everybody was back then was saying seventies was crap, you know, I mean, and now I think there's a lot more appreciation for it, but I remember for a while in the eighties, you know, at least among younger, yeah, seventies wasn't considered cool. You know, I mean, that's. So, so yeah, you're going to get something like that in in every decade, you know. And uh, but but again, you know, bringing this back to, uh, to George Harrison, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I I think though he was able to 
uh, you know, capitalize on, I mean, you know, it certainly sounded contemporary for the 80s, and, and uh, but, but again, he didn't sacrifice his signature sound, and I think that's, you know, what what was the amazing transformation. I, I also want to comment on, on something else. We're talking about, you know, also his changing attitudes. It was interesting to see that when, when We Was Fab certainly parodied a, a bit, you know, Beatles stuff. But I think it was fascinating that in 87, around the same time, you know, he performed at the Prince's Trust. Mm-hmm. Right. You remember? Mm-hmm. And and did, I think it was Here Comes the Sun and Wall by Guitar Gently Weeps. And, mm-hmm. you know, that I think he was starting, and then the following year he went to the induction ceremony at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the Beatles. So I think it's interesting how he was, I think, starting to revisit his past mm-hmm. and at the time kind of come to peace with it. Uh, yeah. In a way, and maybe celebrate it more than he had before. And then it went out just a couple of years after, uh, well, like four years after, Cloud Nine went out with Eric Clapton to Japan. Did I want to tell mm-hmm. you, Old Brown Shoe, right. Tash right. Man, mm-hmm. if I needed yeah. someone, you know, uh, lots of Beatles Piggies. stuff. Piggies, yep. So, yep. so, yeah, I think he really was sort of beginning to thaw a bit on the Beatles thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't too long after that, after the, the Japanese tour, that, you know, the, the whole anthology project began to, you know, fully flower. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and while he certainly had, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of a um, probably was of two minds during much of that time. <laughs> uh, he, uh, That's a nice uh, way of putting it. <laughs> right. Um while he was of, of certainly a, of two minds, uh, the you know the the fact that he was you know indeed willing to cooperate in the project uh, makes it especially given his own fate, um, you know all the more precious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For sure. And when you consider George actually referred to those Lennon songs as those silly Lennon songs to record, mm. you know, mm-hmm. he kind of compromised to do it. Yeah. Yeah, very much so, and uh, and you know, which makes them those two records particularly all the more precious because those are the only uh, the only other Beatle you know Beatles group recordings that we will uh, that we will ever hear. Yeah, mm-hmm. presumably. Yep. Yeah, and uh, should add also uh, that along with Cloud Nine and the two Traveling Wilburys albums, there are also three tracks that also f- that are from that same period that can um, correctly, I, uh, but I think they've been out of print now for a goodly uh, amount of time. They were released in '88. Uh, 80- or 89 89 on the best of the right exactly yeah and poor little girl was in there and mm-hmm. um, cockamamie blues business yeah and cheer down oh well, yeah that's right <laughs> but cheer down cheer down was released on um what was it called songs by george harrison ah mm-hmm. released right. from a few years ago so right. yeah, those those two tracks, I believe the other two tracks should be out of print. Yeah, they've right been now. as far as I as far as I remember, they've been out of print for quite quite a number of years. Weren't they on the? There was a like a best of Dark Horse album. Yeah, that's that's, that's yeah. the one. That's, that's the one the, you're talking. Yeah, yeah, 
And that's out of print. Wow. Sheer oh, yes. Yeah, that's been out of print for a long time. Gosh, I'm old. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I remember buying that album when it was new. Holy cow. Okay, anyway. Yeah. And Cheer Down was an amazing song, actually. That's a good oh, yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. I love that. Some love that song. Some of the best slide guitar work he has ever done. And not only that, but he goes on for like, I don't know, a minute to two minutes of doing a solo towards the end. And that never right. happens on a George Harrison record. He just kept playing, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, an, an, yeah, that, uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because, gosh, I, I'd forgotten about that. That's that's right. But, you know, another thing that's interesting is, you know, I of course, I, I listened to the first Traveling Wilburys just to, you know, since we're talking about just the 80s uh-huh. time period. And it's so fascinating to hear his contributions, or I mean, both in his vocals and, and you know, presumably, well, lyrics he co-wrote and everything. It's so interesting. You, know, you really get a sense of, sort. I think, the frame of mind in a way that, that he was in at the time. Um, this sort of, as we were talking about, this kind of accepting his past a bit more. I mean, it's, you know, the line that he sings and end of the line, you know, uh, what is it? Remember to live and let live. The best you can do is forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another one. Um, he's, uh, you know, I mean, he just has this. The, and he looks back on his life. I mean, I always thought it was striking in the first, you know, the very first line of "Handle me, uh, handle with care." Uh, you know, been beat up and battered around. Been yeah. set up and been knocked, you know, knocked down, uh, and uh, you know, and then saying he was overexposed, commercialized. I mean, it, you know, I, I love, I love that line, by the way. But, uh, but I mean, I think he was looking back and and certainly, you know, expressing some disgust about being overexposed and commercialized. But I, I think, um, you know, he, he has this sense of, I think, he's sort of reconciling with his past. Uh, you know, another one, Heading for the Light, which I, I hadn't yeah, listened to that song in a while. That's a great yeah. song, isn't it? And, you know, when he sings, I don't see nothing new, but I feel a lot of change. You know, I mean, that's kind of what he was doing in the 80s, I think, is particularly the late 80s. That, that he was going through these these changes professionally, creatively. And, uh, you know, just fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, I also remember at the time of the Traveling Wilburys, because after Cloud Nine, he didn't make another solo album. Yeah, isn't you know, that the, amazing? The next solo right? album wasn't until after his passing with Yeah, But he was asked about that, and he said, well, he finds it more interesting to be in a band. He found mm-hmm. it more gratifying to do the Traveling Wilburys at that time. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, mm-hmm. he probably missed being in a band and having mm-hmm. that kind of chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, you could, again, of two minds, you know, he didn't want to, you know, I think the, he didn't want to be part of the, you know, having, having been part of the star making machinery, you know, once before he, I, I don't think he wanted any, any part of it by uh, the late, uh, by the late eighties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so when he put can't... together a band, it's a band of, of pretty much his, his peers, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. And but I think still... that's... Oh, oh no, I was just going to say that, and I think that's what makes tra- those Traveling Wilburys albums so great. I mean, it's it's not only, you know, him and his peers, but, I mean, these are friends, you know, and it's, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, great to hear. I mean, it's like just a group of really skilled player friends and singers and songwriters jamming together. And I think that they're just so joyful to listen to. I mean, you know, they're just those, again, held up extremely well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah to, to me, it's a combination of the music and the camaraderie. Yes. Between the five of them. Not mm-hmm. so much being famous and having success with the records. They just enjoyed making music together. And exactly. that's what mattered the most. It's the music, really, that matters the most. So mm-hmm. even though it was commercial, I mean, Handle With Care is <laughs> such oh. a catchy song, you know. It does. And, uh, right. you know, you, Heading For The Light is one of my favorite songs. That's you know, a great so, song. I don't, I don't see how that couldn't have been a hit. Um, yeah. And the line was tremendous. But everybody in the group was great. In the traveling mm-hmm. Wilburys, and they really, they were real equals. You know, you had moments when each of them had lead vocals, like mm-hmm. in the Beatle days. Sure. So uh, that's one thing that's uh, one of the many things that's remarkable about the traveling Wilburys. But it all came yeah. down to music, anyway. Oh sure, sure. Exactly. And 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 even you know the fact that Dylan was able to kind of, you know, sublimate his his ego enough <laughs> to. You know, to blend in with the the band concept. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, he kind of stretched on that. Oh no, I was just saying that he stretched himself on that album too. I mean, he, you know, I mean, yeah, he didn't do typically Dylan sounding songs. I mean, oh that, no. Yeah, and and so I think that's a good point. That that uh, you know, as a side note, that yeah, he he really did sublimate himself to work you know that was that was really a unit i mean they worked together as a unit and and, uh that's what made those albums so good yeah Mm -hmm. and again also uh the sense of humor in the band oh yeah man yeah listen to the lyrics of something like inside out Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a funny song you know Mm -hmm. and uh the fact that that dylan's singing you know most of it uh Mm -hmm. you know it shows his sense of humor too yep Absolutely. Kit, I just wanted to, we'll, we'll have to do this quickly, Yes. but wanted to quickly, since, uh, since you haven't been here since the Hollywood Bowl album and eight days mm-hmm. a week have been released, just yeah. wanted to get your, your quick thoughts on, uh, mm-hmm. on both. Well, f- well, f- as far as the Hollywood uh, Bowl album goes, I mean, what, what a remarkable change. I mean, I remember having that album, you know, when I got it in the, probably the early eighties, I mean, shortly before it was, uh, you know, before it went out of print mm-hmm. and it wasn't an album that I went back to periodic, you know, a, a whole lot because of the sound and boy, it's just incredible how they've been able to, I mean, the crowd noise is still there, obviously, but they've really toned it down so you can hear you know actually hear them and hear the nuances um and and so i think it's it's remarkable i think you know giles and all them did a fantastic job i mean you know it's they give they've given the album the treatment it deserves and and i think it's important for anyone to to if you have you know if you have it this is worth rebuying you know didn't mind didn't mind the uh the reverb you know, it, it. I didn't love it, to be honest with you. I mean, I wish they had toned it down a little bit so you could hear even more nuances. But, you know, that is a quibble. That's true. But, as I said, the fact that, that just you can hear it. I, I felt like I was hearing some of that album for the first time. I mean, I really did. But just because they could tone down the crowd noise. Um, it just... It, it was an entirely different uh, experience for me, but yes, I can see the point about the reverb. That it, it's, I don't know why that was necessary, but you know, it, it's it's still, I think, very worthwhile, and uh, high time that they they remastered it. And did you have the problem that 
some have had with the fact that the four bonus tracks were tacked on to the end rather than being blended in with the you know the concert itself yeah i mean it it wasn't a like a you know complete mood killer for me i mean it it would have been better to to have it you know be a, a more accurate presentation of a full concert of what the concert really was that would have been optimal but still i i still was just so blown away by much of the sound that that it wasn't a, an absolute killer for me you know um but uh, but yes it would have been would have been nicer if they had had them in the exact order but you know it's still the sound's so great that uh it's it doesn't bother me to the point that i'm i can't listen to it you know mm-hmm. and how about eight days a week well eight days a week i you know I, I thought it was a lot of fun and you know i saw it as you all did in the theater with a group and that was a great experience but you know i i wrote a review of it online uh for something else reviews so you can take a look at it, but I wrote that from a second generation perspective. So I, I had a little bit of a different take on it. It, it was fun, but I wanted, I wanted some kind of, some kind of revelation there, you know, something, you know, something new, or at least to come to some conclusion. Um, you know, how did the touring affect their future albums or, you know, how, how did their, their tours set the stage for, uh, you know, future acts and how they toured, you know, something like that. And instead it was just sort of, you know, recounting their, their tour, you know, all their live shows, which is fine. Um, but I guess I was just, I kept sitting there thinking, where's, where's something new where is the revelation here and and it just wasn't there so it just for for hardcore fans there's just nothing new there it's nice although i will say the colorized footage really bothered me really really, bothered. really? oh my god did that bother me really oh. I, I normally i'm I, I can't stand colorized old movies yeah i but i really liked it i i i made an exception here i thought the washington footage looked tremendous Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 you know, I understand. I, like I said, I'm a real purist when it comes to old black and white movies. I hate, I hate some of the colorized. That actually looked good. I, I really thought so. It just, yeah, it just really bothered me. I just thought it didn't look, you know, it, it detracted a bit from from it for me. I just felt like, you know, I, I'm probably a nerdy purist whatever but you know i just felt like you're tampering with history <laughs> i mean you know now well, on, on oh go ahead i'm sorry no speaking of that there is one thing that um i forgot to mention last week uh, a few weeks ago we interviewed nigel sinclair and uh mm-hmm. paul crowder and i had asked them whether it was true that um they had substituted the audio of the manchester clips she loves you and and twist and shout with Hollywood Bowl audio. And they said, no, no, we didn't. Um, and when I was writing a piece for uh, the next issue of Beatle Fan, I, I thought, okay, you know, I now have time to sit here and do the comparisons. And there is no question 
they replaced the audio from yeah. Manchester with uh-huh. the Hollywood Bowl audio. So um, wow. to me, that goes even beyond. Uh, most people won't even notice it because the performances are similar and and their mouths move when they should move on screen. And But mm-hmm. in terms of faking something, that, which is what we're complaining about with colorizing, yeah. to me, that's even worse, you know, because mm. this is supposed to be a documentary. You know, they're, they're promoting it as a documentary. Good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'd can I get that out there. Oh. Go ahead. I, Go ahead. I, I, well, I was going to bring up. I was going to bring up another question. Go ahead and say what you. Were oh, okay. Say. I was going to say just you know, the, the, especially considering the fact that there's nothing particularly wrong with either of those two performances in their in their original form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up a, a, a question, actually, basically to Alan, because um, I heard your comments on another show about the Hollywood Bowl and about the about the, the re- you were you were talking about the reverb and you weren't really comfortable with it now as you were because we had talked about this before. And I was thinking when I was listening to that, there's going to be a lot of people that have not heard the bootlegs and are hearing this stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm. And I, you know, I, as much as, as much as you and I and everybody else that's listening to the show has heard the bootlegs, there are going to be a lot of people that, like I said, have not heard that stuff before. Does the Hollywood Bowl still pass muster as, on that, on those terms for you? And I, and I'd love to hear from everybody else too. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I understand why they did that reverb. It's a, a certain philosophy of how to present a live album and what you're presenting. And they're, mm-hmm. I guess, trying to present more of, you know, what you would get in the venue than what you get listening to the tapes. And I guess if you're, if you haven't heard, heard it without the reverb, um, you know, hearing it the first time with the reverb, even knowing that there shouldn't be reverb there, I actually found it a kind of exciting sound. So I could, I could see, you know, someone who doesn't know the bootlegs um, being perfectly happy with it. And, and that's fine with me. I mean, I can still listen to it. It's just that given, given a choice, I'd listen to the bootlegs without the reverb. Because mm. mm. I think the, um, I think the album sounds... I I mean I think what they what what uh, Giles did to it sounds fine for me. I mean I've listened to it on headphones. I've listened to it in my car. I've listened to it at home. I mean uh, it I I don't have I don't have a real problem with it. Um, maybe I'm being a little too getting uh, easier in my old age, but <laughs> I, I but I, I just don't. I, I don't have the obje- uh, any objections. I, I shouldn't say the objections uh, that I have are not enough to bother me that much. And and, and I'm, frankly, I'm the same way. Fra- mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, you know, there's really not that many young people that probably you know would even know of the existence of the bootlegs of mm-hmm. the Hollywood Bowl performances. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I. I the, Go ahead. the reverb doesn't make it totally unlistenable for oh, me. Oh no, I, no, yeah. I would, I'm not saying that it does. No, mm-hmm. I know, I know. I, I the, some of the comments I heard kind of uh, led to that. Not not yours, but others. And um, I just, I, I, you know, I was thinking that I, that was the thing that went through my mind. That no, it's not unlistenable at all. Uh, it sounds, it sounds perfectly fine. You know, I think the uh, reverb. And, and, the reverb gives it an ambiance. Yeah, it exactly. makes you feel like you're there, 
and it's not buried in reverb. So, no. you know, if, no, if they no. overdid it, that'd be one thing. I think they had the right balance. I think everything that Giles did was just fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted, that hit me when I was listening to that. And I just wanted to make a point about that. So there we go. Well, that's, that's how I felt like it was like, you know, I didn't love, I mean, I, I definitely see your point, Alan. I mean, I don't love the reverb. It'd be nice to have a, you know, really 100% pure, you know, version, but it's not a deal killer for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I still think, as you said, Giles did a did an incredible job, and just the fact that they were able to tamper down that crowd noise, mm-hmm. I mean, that was worth the price of admission right there for mm-hmm. me. I mean, the, the 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 deal killer, if you want to call it that, is the fact yeah. that mm-hmm. the full shows. That's an issue that we talked about, and that that's something that that yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been nice, but the album itself, I think, is fine. So yeah, there we mm-hmm. go. And, uh, well, I don't need uh, either uh, Anderson Cooper or Martha Raddatz to tell me that we're, that we're, that we're out of time. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, as, as always, when, when Kit is here, the time just flies by. But, uh, Kit, first of all, uh, let's uh, see if you have any, because uh, I know you're doing uh, about 8 million different uh, online radio appearances and various <laughs> and sundry things, so let her rip. Okay, well, um, coming up, and I'm not, at this taping, I'm not quite sure of the dates yet, so, uh, you know, check my Facebook page. You can also find me on uh, kiddotool.com. Um, or uh, on Twitter, Kiddo Tool. I'll have all the details, but I'm going to be on uh, Bob Wilson's Antenna Radio, uh, and I will. Uh, we're going to do a, an episode on John. It was supposed to be. Uh, it was supposed to air on his birthday, but uh, we had to reschedule it. So I'm going to do that, and then I will also be on the show uh, from Me to You, which is uh, out of Nashville. Um, and I think I'll just be uh, talking there about uh, my two books and uh, just general. Beatley goodness, and uh, so uh, so I'll be on those shows uh, coming up uh, sometime this month. Got you getting me a start. Do we get do we get a percentage of this? Yeah, show? really. Do we get <laughs> yeah. a commission from this? <laughs> but you know, but and and I look forward to my next appearance on this show. I love it. And both you and Ken just recently appeared on Steve Ludwig's. Yes, uh, internet did. radio show and both are archived at planetludwig.com yep yes. it is yep. Okay. yeah we both did shows and they they were a lot of fun so uh, yeah do do look those up as well yeah and, i enjoyed the one with you kit just listen to it oh yeah. they were great. it was fun it was a lot of fun yeah, I have to catch up on both of those, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And Ken, besides uh, besides that, you've got some things going on your website and with every little thing. Well, the website, which is KenMichaelsRadio.com, always has weekly Beatles trivia. And uh, you always have your choice of one of nine prizes every single week to win something. And uh, most recently, the Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl on CD. And there's Kit's book, Songs You Were Singing. Woo-hoo. Which you can win on the on the website too. Plus, there's loads of interviews on the website, including interviews with Kit mm-hmm. and with everybody else in the show who I've interviewed mm-hmm. at various times. So that's it. And uh, and of course, there's my show, Every Little Thing, which is on about 20 radio stations. 
around the world. And if you look up the link on my website for every little thing, you can find out where you can stream the show. So uh, every single radio station you can stream these days. So um, it's right there on the website. Steve, what do you have to, uh, to plug these days? Well, uh, let me first say that you can contact us by uh, writing uh, things we said today radio show at gmail.com and we want to mm-hmm. hear your your good advice and your your comments and and uh, ideas. Um, and I just uh, did a little revamping on the Podbean site beatlesexaminer.podbean.com um, uh, there's a search now where you can search for shows and um, there's a, uh, all the archives are there so you can click in on topics and so that that's there and you can uh, find me on Facebook my own page where I will talk about music and other things and then for Beatles stuff only there's a Beatles news and commentary group which you are welcome to join and and uh we have over four thousand members and and um i post links and and talk about various beetle items and things like that uh all the time so you are welcome to catch me there and um that's uh that's about it matter of fact i did i did want to ask you because Uh you had uh (laughs) when you were on examiner you were also doing all manner of you had a monkeys column you had a uh tv and dvd column you had a weird weird al Al, yeah Yeah. (laughs) good old weird (laughs) al those things have all disappeared Um, okay you see you're not doing any of that on the no, other no, outlets. No, on the on the access on the access.com thing, no, I'm uh, no, I'm not doing those. Uh, I can still write about various topics, uh, although uh, I mean I can still write about that stuff most of it for access except for the DVDs I can't do on access cuz it's all live entertainment. Mm. Um, but um, I like I uh, if anybody followed me recently i did an interview with joan embry who used to appear on the tonight show with um johnny carson and uh, i did that on blasting news and i will you know uh, most of my stuff will be on access or billboard i think uh uh, so that's but i will also post the links on my facebook page and on the and, and, and the relevant ones in the beatles news group uh so there we go um i'm i haven't disappeared and actually, I've been thinking about uh, whether or not I should start up a mailing list. And if uh, those of you listening to me out here uh, would like a mailing list, let me know, and I will I will consider doing that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And Mr. Cozen, where can people uh, contact you? And uh, plus, you uh, uh, well, you, as I mentioned, you do have a new piece in the uh, uh, in the New York Times, or at least on the Times on the Times website, right? Right. The, the the website one persists, and the one that came out in paper is in most people's trash heaps by now. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> except, of course, for the people who collect them archivally. Um, uh, yeah, you can reach me either at the things we said today email address that Steve gave, or through Facebook at Alan Cozen, or my sort of alter ego, Alan Cozen Remixed. Um, and I pretty much post on one or both of those pages most things I'm doing. I've got, I don't know, when does the next Beatle fan come out, Al? Uh, should be within the next uh, maybe two or three weeks. 
Okay, so if you haven't heard yeah. enough from me about um, Hollywood Bowl in eight days a week, there's another 4,000 words uh, or so <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in that upcoming issue. Yeah, I'll be on the and, – and uh, Kit has a piece also in that issue, right? Yeah, uh, my column, yep. Uh, oh, just the, just the regular the hard days, that this, column? Yeah, yeah, this issue, just the column. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because between between Alan's piece and Jeff Slate's piece, I'll probably be on the last page just before <laughs> what's left of the uh, you know of the the classifieds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I doubt that. But but otherwise, uh, otherwise you can uh, you, you can reach me on Facebook at Al Sussman, uh, on Twitter at ASUSS49, or through Beetle Fan Magazine, www.beetlefan.com. And we're we're way over. So, <laughs> uh, and Ken, also uh, you wanted to uh, since we. Uh, on show, well, not show number 200, but on the commemoration of our 200 first, first 200 episodes last week, uh, we thanked a bunch of people and Ken remembered a couple that we, uh, that we missed. Yeah. Where would we be without the stations that carry the show? Yes. Uh, so I just want to thank. <laughs> that's, that's a possibility. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank Matt Burley at Fab4Radio.com. I want to thank Alan Haber at PurePopRadio.com. And also Maverick Hayes. And um, he programs WCPR1.com. So those three stations carry things we said today. So thanks to all you guys for carrying the show. And let me, let me, oh, go ahead. Plus the fact that we're on Podbean.com and also on iTunes and youtube as well right. and let me let me mention for anybody that heard the show last week that i posted links to all four of the uh full episodes that we excerpted in the show on the on our facebook page so hmm. they're there excellent there you go excellent well this has been another uh fast-paced hour that just flown an hour plus that's flown by and uh just wanted to thank uh thank kid o'toole for uh for dropping by oh and thank you so much any i'll i love coming here anytime i'll be i'll what? be back <laughs> oh you certainly will be very soon as a matter of fact great <laughs> Well, we'll thanks. Have score, we'll have to score EDM music underneath the show. Window. There you go. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Earplug. <laughs> Earplugs. We'll put Michael Jackson uh, backing tracks. Man. You know, yeah. There you go. Well, idea. that you know. I can deal with. But, yeah. Uh, there you go. Not, not EDM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Anyway, again, yeah, thank uh, thank Kit and uh, for uh, uh, Ken Michaels and Steve Marinucci and Alan Cozen. Uh, this is Al Sussman. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>